0: Hello charter folk, terrific to be with you today. Very excited about today's chat. We have two pioneering legislators with us responsible for the original charter school laws which passed in the United States. We have with us today, former Minnesota State Senator, Amber Reichcott Young, who uh, passed the first uh, charter school law in the United States. That law was um, signed by the governor on June 4th, 1991, meaning we're about six weeks away from the 30th anniversary of the first uh, charter school law in the United States being passed. We also have with us uh, former state Senator um, Gary Hart from California who about a year later here in California uh, passed uh, the the California law. Um, And uh, we thought that having these two pioneering legislators with us uh, to talk about the significance of the thirtieth anniversary uh, would be a, just a, a phenomenal topic. So to both of you, thank you so much for being with us here today. Uh, thrilled to uh, to get your observations at this at this um, at this critical moment.
1: Great to be with you, Jen. Thank you.
0: Thank you. It's, it is
2: a delight to be with you and with Gary. We were just one year apart in these laws, and in fact, we knew about each other working at the time. 30 years ago, so it's a great re- reunion.
0: One thing that I've uh, done in, in preparation for our interview is read a lot about you folks. I've known a lot about you anyway, but I read even more. Um, you know, on my desk, you know, I keep zero chance of passage, It's it's right there. Uh, I told you, Amber, a little while ago, I had bought 12 of them and found out I'd give it all 12 of them away. I had to buy my 13th one. And um, you know, Senator Hart, you know, the picture of you coming to visit me at, at the CCSA office. Uh, yes, you do look like you're about a foot and a half taller than me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you guys are heroes of mine. And so uh, I'm thrilled for for additional reasons to have you here with us. Um, but. Uh, Uh, The additional work I've been doing has been to review some videos and I've seen that you guys have already done some some interviews where you reflect on the significance of the the passage of these laws. Uh, One that was particularly strong was one that that you did, Ember, where you were the moderator and and Gary, you were there with Eric Premack and with Sue Burr, really walking us through the history of things. I'm going to try not to repeat that. In fact, I'm going to put a link to that so that people can also see that. What I'm trying to do is just add to it some additional nuance, maybe some later thinking, you know, that's emerged in the last couple of years. So, you know, with that as as general context, I thought I would just ask you guys what, what what has really occurred to me for the first time or to occur to me more, you know, deeply looking at things right now is when you look at Zero Chance of Passage, Amber, you chose your title very well. I mean, you read this book and it just seems like there's no way that a law like you were proposing was going to get through, and the political maneuvering and the last-second heroics and the heartbreaking compromises and what, but something highly improbable got through. And then, you know, Gary, when we see how the California law got passed with two versions, you know, brought to the conference committee, and then, you know, uh, your decision to. Pull one back that allowed something to get through that probably was just simply not politically viable. But you know, lightning struck. So what I wonder is, as you think about the 30th anniversary, to what extent you know uh, does the improbableness of the fact that these movements exist at all you think um, belong to be a, a, a key understanding of how we appreciate our movement altogether and how we appreciate something like like a 30th anniversary.
2: No one was more surprised than I was to see how chartering went across the country almost within the first year. And now to have over three million students in chartering, that never was even close to my thought when we when we passed this. Uh, you're, The title of the book, Zero Chance of Passage, came from my colleague who was the House author. Her name is Representative Becky Kelso. And when I interviewed her for my book 20 years later, she said, yeah, I had zero confidence it would pass. And I didn't know that. We had worked on it for about three years in the Minnesota Senate, and we finally got it through over to the House side. But I have to tell you that I was devastated because it had been compromised so much. And so we got it over to the House side, and this is where the story really begins. And the story, like you say, is how legislation happens. The uh, Democrats were being pressured quite a bit by the unions, and um, the, uh, the bill was up, and it didn't look good on the debate. It really didn't. I thought the bill was going to go down for the third year in a row. But here's what happened. The, um, <laughs> the Speaker of the House called for the vote. And as I looked up and saw the the red lights going up and meaning no, I thought this is going down. But then the speaker allowed the board to stay open, stay open, stay open. And pretty soon he picked up his gavel and he slammed it down and he said, the speaker, the secretary will close the roll. And I, I looked up and it passed by three votes. That was the key vote in the process. What I learned years later by interviewing the speaker is that there was only one person on the House floor who knew the cumulative vote of the uh, the cumulative count of the votes. So he stopped the vote right at the time when we were three votes ahead. But what people don't realize is that 10 members of the house had not voted, most of whom were Democrats. And so the power of the speaker, was used in a very legitimate way to stop the vote. Later, I found out that many of those Democrats did not wish to vote because they didn't want to raise the ire of the unions. So it passed by three votes because the speaker was with us and nobody ever knew that for 20 years.
0: (laughs) Amazing story, amazing story. Uh, Senator Hart, your thoughts about improbability of what you got through and what that means in terms of 30th anniversary significance and all that?
1: Well, I concur with Ember, it was uh, you know, a long shot. Uh, we were not expecting that we would probably have uh, success. So ultimately to succeed was a very uh, pleasant surprise. Unlike the Minnesota experience, however, uh, there was not a lot of compromise because there were two versions of the bill, as you mentioned earlier, Jed, and both of these bills went to a conference committee, basically uh, without any, you know, amendments. And so my bill was really in the form that I um, wanted it to be in, and we were able through this conference committee process to um, withdraw the committee from withdraw the bill from the conference committee. Um, and the other side didn't quite understand what was going on and was sort of caught with their pants down, if you'll uh, pardon that expression. And we were able to very quickly pass the bill in the state Senate um, without uh, any debate at all and no amendments and the bill with its passage then went immediately to the governor and we had a Republican governor, At that time pete wilson who was very supportive of the legislation so he uh, signed my bill and the other bill which was sort of left hanging in the conference committee that the unions and traditionalists were supporting um, they were able to do the same thing and remove the bill uh, back to the state assembly and have it passed but there was no way that the governor was going to sign it because he much preferred um my bill to that of uh, the unions and the traditionalists that that were supporting the other bill.
0: I think what's important here- Highly improbable. Yeah, please.
2: Yeah, no, what's important here too, is that there were things um, going on in, in, in that year between us. And when the bill was passed in Minnesota, much to my surprise, The Republican United States Senator, Dave Dernberger, picked it up and brought it to Washington almost immediately and lauded the passage of this bipartisan proposal on the United States Senate floor. And this other person sent me a letter. He was chairman of the Democratic Leadership Council. He happened to be governor of Arkansas, and he congratulated me and the Minnesota legislature for passing this Charter School Pragmatic Solution for Public School Choice, and of course, that was then Governor Bill Clinton. So during that summer, between the passage in Minnesota, getting it over to you, Gary Hart, in California, was already making its way around the country. And I will also say this, had it not been Jed and Gary for California, I don't think it would have gone very far. Ted Coldery, who really is the intellectual behind all of this here in Minnesota, would often say that, you know, Minnesota was sort of like always considered an outlier on education and public school choice and post-secondary options. But when it went to California, that was a big deal. And when it was signed into law in that state, that's when it really took off. So I think it was like the one-two punch there. Gary, that without you, it wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. And then immediately Governor Romer and Representative Peggy Kearns and later Governor Bill Owens picked it up in Colorado. So that's how it went. But really was all coordinated behind the scenes.
1: Well, if I could just add to that, uh, thank you for giving credit to California because we're such a large state. But when I was thinking about introducing this bill, it seemed so... um, um out of the ordinary and perhaps laughable to a lot of people i really questioned whether or not this was a measure uh worth pursuing and when i learned that minnesota had not only introduced a bill but it had become law the previous year that gave me um you know some backbone to kind of move forward with the bill and not feel that i was going to be the lone ranger so we owe a lot to ember and to minnesota for being the true pioneers and in this instance uh, you know we were we were pleased to uh, be second fiddle to ember and and add our po- population weight to you know what was going on in the charter movement and i must say you know one of the interesting things as soon as the legislation was passed in california or shortly thereafter i got a call from governor romer's office and asked me to come to colorado and to meet with the governor and i came and spent a couple of hours with governor romer and boy shortly thereafter uh, things started moving in Colorado. So um, the momentum was was there in the early 90s, and uh, you know, the rest is history.
2: And I'd be remiss if we didn't say one very important factor here, and that is it was very much bipartisan, never would have passed if it hadn't been. However, the three lead offers of these bills to start, myself, you, Gary, and Representative Peggy Kearns in Colorado, we're all Democrats and people don't realize that. And you you asked earlier about the 30th anniversary. The thing I'm most sad about today is how chartering has taken on these partisan tones because people don't realize that it would never have passed Without almost an equal number of Democrats and Republicans, certainly in the Minnesota Legislature, and the Democratic Speaker who let it go, if you will, let it go through, um, and that's disappointing to me because for me the reason that I started this whole idea, what what got me going about it, is I wanted to empower teachers. I was union endorsed by the teachers union. I wanted to empower teachers. I wanted them to have The opportunity to try new strategies, to do different things in the classroom, and I had a friend who went to college with me at St. Olaf College, became a teacher, and um, she she was she left teaching, she went into healthcare because she felt like her hands were tied behind her back. She couldn't do what she wanted to do. She had ideas. She had exciting things she wanted to offer her students. So I always thought the charting was about empowering teachers, and so that's why. That's been a disappointment for me over the years, although I will say that in Minnesota, a number of teachers have come together and, in fact, created an authorizer, the first union initiated authorizer in the country, who did see the benefit of
0: empowering teachers. It's it's certainly um, my family's experience in public education. You know, mom and dad spent 33 years working in public education. I think. They would have worked 43 my dad they retired when they were 56 because they were so frustrated at not having been able to achieve within the traditional system what they wanted to do and you know my dad when he came to visit me when i was the authorizer of of charter schools in san diego uh each school we visited just gave him a greater sense of envy oh if he had only had the chance to be a Mm. maverick you know in our generation as opposed to his um and that was something that was made available because of the work that you guys did in, in the legislature Question I had for you, Ember, uh, on the second day of Charter Folk, I wrote, you know, about this, this thing I, I, I called Why, Why We Give a Damn About Charter Schools. And, um, uh, I mean, we're, we're gathered, you know, on a, on a moment when there is a very high stakes uh, court case happening right now. Um, uh, and, you know, we, we had the death of George Floyd, you know, happen in Minnesota. And it actually happened in a legislative district. Um, that ended up being pivotal, you know, in terms of the leader from that district helping, you know, this this law um, be passed. And uh, my own experience, my first charter school I ever set foot in was at Fenton Avenue Elementary School. And that uh, school, the attendance boundary is where the beating of Rodney King happened. And the, the school's charter was filed, you know, in the same weeks, you know, that the beating had in fact happened, right? And so when we look back, I think many people see that there's just a real intersection between the origins of the charter school movement and some of these issues of civil rights and our country just not uh, having lived up to its ideals yet. And so I just wonder, uh, to what extent was that part of your thinking back then? I, I know there's the empowerment of teachers, and there's and and there's the other restrictions in the in the system that weren't there, but there's also this underlying unfairness, these other issues of justice. Were they a part of the discussions, you know, all the way back in in 1991 and 92?
2: You know, there weren't very many supporters of the charter school law when I brought it forward, but some of the key supporters were the communities of color, for sure. They saw it. They knew that this was an opportunity for them because we had open enrollment in Minnesota where you could attend any public school of your choice. But you needed resources to take a bus to go across town to go to that school. What we didn't have were the choices in our own neighborhood. And that's what chartering provided. It was like the third leg of that stool. And it was really important. But you know what, Jed? I have to say that when I read your article about how it comes around to George Floyd, I almost got goosebumps because I didn't recognize that until you pointed it out. I'm sitting here in my home, downtown Minneapolis. I'm looking out over the courthouse where the trial is taking place right now. And now you're telling me, and you're so right, that Representative Ken Nelson, who was the deciding Democratic vote in the House, the deciding vote in that conference committee, represented the very area that George Floyd died in. And I will say this, blocks, just blocks from where George Floyd died is one of the best charter schools in the nation. It's a blue ribbon national school of excellence. It's called Friendship Academy for the Arts. And guess what? It's 98% African American and it's one of the best schools in the country. Why? Because they were expect they were setting expectations and those students met them. And that was the problem then and now is so often in our traditional schools, we just seem to have expectations built in. And in this school, they built them and the students met them and it's a school of excellence. And it continues to this day um, in that neighborhood, just blocks from where he died.
0: Fascinating. Gary, what any of these underlying issues of of equity and justice within our tr- pub- public school system that were a part of the discussions as your bill was advancing uh, nearly 30 years ago?
1: Um, you know, somewhat it wasn't a major point of uh, debate or discussion, but it was certainly a major consideration of mine in introducing the bill because I was a product of the civil rights movement. I worked in Mississippi in 1966. I Participated with Martin Luther King in the March Against Fear, uh, uh, the length of Mississippi in 1966, and you know I just have a, a background that, um, like, Ember is as a Democrat, a progressive Democrat. That's just part of your, you know, your DNA. So it was, it was very important to me personally. I might, uh, and you know, Al Shanker, uh, ironically, the head of the American Federation of Teachers. This was a point that he. pointed in uh, suggesting charter experimentation was that we had substantial um, education gains among African-American and other um, disadvantaged students in the 1960s as a result of Title I and other such programs. But the progress since the 1960s in terms of academic achievement um, had been was very limited, and he was suggesting that we needed some bold experimentation to see if we can break out of this mode. And so, even with someone uh, you know like Shanker, the emphasis was on civil rights. You know, there's one other point that I would make as a product of the 1960s. To to date myself a little bit, I was a product of um, you know student protests and demonstrations uh, that focused largely on the war in Vietnam. Um, and also the civil rights movement but another part of this also was the sense of dehumanization and institutional bureaucracy it's what mario savio and the free speech movement was about and so having people um and having an opportunity for charter schools that could break out of the institutional mode and operate in a more humane and uh free association was something that was um, extremely important to me in authoring the law, and I think it's been one of the benefits of charter schools is that it has provided um, less uh, institutional, bureaucratic uh, constraints that have really um, uh, prevented you know, your father, Jed, and, and so many others to feel like um, uh, they weren't able to work in an environment that really took full advantage of their ideals and their, their abilities.
0: I think this comes back to that improbability um, uh, reality I was talking about at the beginning of our conversation, where people just didn't expect something like this to pass and for there to be so many different opportunities to run at so many different, uh, so many different problems. And, um, and I think what I've heard you guys talk about what surprised you, oh my goodness, we have people that are really committed to homeschooling. And homeschooling now becomes a big part of the charter school. Oh, we have folks that want to do uh, personalized learning or we have, uh, we have virtual schools. You know, we have people, some people, though, were like Howard Fuller. They really wanted to use the charter school angle to run at age old civil rights issues. Right. And it it's took a little while for people to realize, wait a second, we have the possibility to run at all of these problems with greater opportunity than we ever, you know, would have otherwise thought. And that's why, you know, late 90s, suddenly new things start happening, early 2000s. Um, I guess my question for you all would be, is there one now that you're thinking a little bit more about it that, that surprises you the most? Uh, and also, is there anything uh, that, that you're thinking new about this, especially in, in the COVID era, where we've got such a need now for different kinds of, of education generally um, and I think a, a, an awareness of problems that there are within the traditional public school system that maybe wasn't there before the COVID crisis came along. Any new thinking you guys are 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 having on on in these areas?
1: Well, let me respond to the first part of your question, Jed, you about uh, surprises. A, a lot of surprises, and that's true, as I'm sure Ember would concur with any legislation that's enacted. Uh, there are always surprises that come along, but I think the the chartered legislation was particularly noteworthy in that regard, and I guess from my standpoint, what was the biggest surprise was the extent to which uh, chartering became um, a very important issue in inner city and rural areas uh, where there's a lot of lot of poverty. Uh, when the legislation was moving through, one of the principal concerns that was expressed is that this would be Um, utilized primarily by suburban communities where there were sophisticated parents uh, who had time on their hands and that um, the urban core areas, for example, would be left behind. And that just hasn't been the case here in California. Uh, We've seen a disproportionate impact, I think, in uh, these high poverty areas where the need is particularly great. In a lot of the suburban areas, um, the schools, uh, there's a greater comfort level and not uh, as much of a a pressure for change. So from my standpoint, that's been the biggest surprise is to the extent to which this has been embraced in inner city communities, for example, not only by parents, but also by foundations and by the business community and others who realize that we have a real crisis in urban education. And we're particularly open to supporting uh, charter schools in in th- these types of communities. Yeah,
2: uh, the um, the the civil rights aspect of it was really a very much a part of it. Um, and as I traveled to other states and other countries, yes, I I've learned that over time. I think uh, I think the majority of charter school students are black and brown throughout the country, you might have those figures better than I do Jed. But what was really surprising to me is when I traveled to Hawaii and to Guam to launch their national charter schools week. And the reason they really wanted charter schools because they wanted to serve their indigenous populations where they could preserve mm-hmm. their Hawaiian culture or their Guam, you know, the native language, all of that. So it really was interesting to me and that was a surprise to me but the other point to you, what you were saying with regard to COVID relates to what was probably the primary purpose of the charter school law for many people, including Ted Coldery uh, and even Joe Nathan. And that was uh, this notion, this focus on innovation, the focus on the research and development sector of public education, because there was nowhere to do that. There was nowhere. Um, and Chartering was misunderstood pretty quickly to be a school, and it's not. The chartering innovation is the law, it's the law that allows the strategies to be tried. You know, Ted likes to say, Innovation is allowing people to try things, and that's what charter schools does, a charter chartering does, which is why we talk about chartering. Now, with the COVID situation, it was interesting. Because all of a sudden, when everybody had to pivot on a dime, all of a sudden, chartered schools seemed to do that with more success more quickly than many of the traditional schools. And I think it was that autonomy, that independence, that ability to move quickly that allowed them to do that. And my hope is that after we all come back, hopefully by the fall, we'll all be back into schools again, that we can all learn from each other, that the district schools can say, oh, wow, that was pretty darn good what those chartered schools did. And the charter schools are going to say, well, and there's some things over there that the districts did. And maybe we can work together. <laughs> maybe we could bring those innovations together and focus on that, which was really the whole purpose of chartering for many of the pioneers. Do
0: you and think that, that to, please, please go ahead. I would
1: just add to the the COVID uh, points that Ember was reaching is that, you know, we, we have so much virtual learning that's been going on um, as a result of the COVID. And, you know, charters have quite a history of, um, as Ember made reference to homeschooling and to um, distance learning. Um, and so there's a body of evidence and experience uh, there that is um, quite rich compared to traditional schools. And a lot of people are saying there's, we're not ever gonna go back to the way things were. There's likely to be um, more of a mixture of, um, you know, face-to-face learning and virtual learning. And as Ember made reference, we have a lot to learn from one another, but I think on this particular point, there's a lot to learn from charter schools because they've been involved in this kind of learning now uh, for quite some time.
0: Yeah, I think the the, the pandemic has um, reminded people of the importance of charter schools and having schools that can be agile and can point a way forward for many other schools. Um, And so it'll be interesting to see what the lasting impact is. Do people remember that charter schools uh, were able to do things like this at at a moment like this and how we wanna have even more innovation and flexibility for for the future. We'll we'll see. Question I, I wanted to um, to ask you about is where we've where we've made mistakes, um, and I have my own that I keep coming back to. It's again b- born out of my family's experience, my personal experience. I came to charters um, after six years in the classroom i taught in in los angeles unified and if things had, had had been okay i would have just stayed there right and uh but we needed to change the way our school worked and we tried to do all sorts of internal district reform and um then our, our reforms which were proving successful got wiped off the map and people kept coming back to me saying you got to do a charter you got to do a charter i was like no 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 it's too crowded it's too busy i don't want to you know deal with it but finally after you know six years of that In the seventh year, we worked to convert our school to charter status. Um, And I saw um, what the power of conversion looked like. And I saw how um, a conversation happening with the faculty changed as people realized it was within our potential to do things. And we visited these conversion schools in Los Angeles that had done this amazing job of changing their schools. But over time, the conversion story, the idea of empowering teachers and principals to, to improve their existing school. I think was de-emphasized by our movement, and I think um, we suffer for that. Um, I think we are much stronger, you know, if we're not seen as something that's just trying to replace everybody, you know, and maybe end up implying that teachers and principals are the problem. When in fact, what we should be doing is going and saying, well, "Are you kidding me? Teachers and principals—they are our solution. They just need to be given more freedom." And the charter school movement affords them that, right? But that's my example of where I think we have one screw up. Uh, do you guys have any particular ones that you keep coming back to as things that we've messed up, that we could be doing better? Uh, and if you have any reactions on this, on this conversion thing in general, of course, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, too. Gary, you were the conversion
2: king. You were the one who created it. Remember, we didn't have that in our law, so I'd be interested in your thoughts on that.
1: Well, I concur entirely with what uh, Jed has just put forward. Um, you know, my idea uh, was that uh, most of the charters would be conversion schools; they would not be, as we say, startup schools, as uh, was the law and is the law in in Minnesota. So, um, you know, and initially uh, some of the initial charters were conversion, but obviously there's been a trend away from that, and there's a heavy emphasis now on um, you know, starting from scratch, and that's not necessarily bad, but it has been disappointing to me that there has not been more of a movement to take existing schools, and rather than to go through a very elaborate process of creating a new school, of being able to modify um, traditional schools and to, to make them charter. So um, I concur with you, Jed, that that's been something that uh, was a bit of a surprise to me, that there has been such a trend towards creating new charter schools as opposed to converting um, existing traditional schools. One other area that I would just point out um, that has been a disappointment to me, actually there you know there are a couple, but one I want to be sure to make reference to is evaluation. It seems to me that most of the evaluation that's gone on in charter schools has been to compare academic achievement with charter schools with traditional schools. Um, and those comparisons are you know, fraught with problems because there is such diversity among charter schools that it's very difficult to, I think, you know, reach, uh, reach conclusions. There's also been a great emphasis on you know, the demographic makeup of charters versus traditional schools. And that's important, but I think it's been um, somewhat overemphasized. Uh, there are areas of the evaluation that I think are deserving of much more attention They have to do with size. Ember made reference to the agility of charter schools, which I think is very important. And to a certain extent, that has to do with size. If you have a school of 500 students versus a school of 3,000 students, it's much easier, I think, to be agile um, in the smaller school than it is in the larger school. So I think doing some evaluation as it relates to size would be important. I also believe that so many traditional schools are meant to be universal or be comprehensive and uh, have every aspect of uh, a potential child's education um, attended to. And as a result, there tends to be a watering down and an inability to focus. Whereas charter schools oftentimes have, I think, much more of a specific mission uh, as their focus, which I think allows them to be much more concentrated on what their mission is there's a downside to that as well uh, that you can be too narrow in your approach so i think that's an area for evaluation as well two other just quick comments on evaluation one has to do with accountability there's much greater ability to um, um, change staff in charter schools particularly those that are you know that are non-union i think that's deserving of uh, evaluation and last but not least is the issue of governance. charter schools, for the most part, the governance structure is by appointment, um, similar to other nonprofits, whereas our traditional public schools, of course, are faced with uh, you know, elected school board members, which is not necessarily bad, but the extent to which uh, these campaigns become uh, very costly and very time consuming and become um, sort of a, a a uh, career ladder for people who want to be professional politicians um, presents a lot of problems for traditional schools that charter schools I don't think have. So these are areas of evaluation that I think we ought to be taking a look at rather than focusing primarily upon academic achievement, which is important, uh, but there's been such a focus on that uh, to the neglect of some of these other areas that I think has been um, a disappointment.
2: I would agree with Just about all of that, Gary. And uh, boy, governance is a huge issue. Um, And I I happen to do a lot of work in that area because um, so many boards don't even realize that they have the responsibility, if you will, to make sure that the academics of the school are successful. Because if the leader isn't performing, it's up to the board to do something about that. But I want to also, I want to go back to one thing you said on the conversion. Um, You know, in Minnesota, yes, the people here, the pioneers here, really did view charters, chartered schools being creating schools new. That was truly what it was about, because that was the idea that you had to create a separate school outside of the system if you were going to put any kind of pressure, if you will, on the system to reform. Um, So that was very much a distinction. But then when California came up with the idea of conversion, we adopted that as did just about every other state as it went forward. Your original question, um, Jed, of um, what are some of the other things, uh, like the things we could have improved on. As the original author, I think there were two things we just didn't even think about. One was the idea of startup funding. Like, oh, you're going to need some funding to plan this out for a year. I mean, it's just, I, it just never occurred to us, and so we were very grateful that Senator Dernberger took that on with John Schrader, who was his policy aide, and uh, created the first charter schools uh, funding program. Without that, they could we we wouldn't have very many charter schools. I'll say say that. The other thing that kind of slipped away from me, if you will and my colleagues is the role of the authorizer and the need for alternative authorizers. We knew we had to have an alternative authorizer, that we knew, and that was one of the really tough compromises that we had to make initially. But the problem was we never told the authorizers what to do. (laughs) And so some authorizers didn't know what their role was to oversee. Some authorizers even today are very, you know, very by-the-book rules and just about the paper. And some authorizers are really about how do we help this this school succeed? What can we do to make it work within the rules? And I think that the type of authorizer you have will also be extremely important to the success of your charter school and your charter school movement, if you will, in that state.
1: And I, I would just answer you, that folks? very briefly. Uh, Jed, if I could just intercede, as I, I couldn't agree with number more. In California, uh, the authorizers are uh, school districts, um, and I felt strongly at the time that um, since we were using public funds and these were meant to be public schools, there needed to be some public accountability. And so we relied upon local elected boards to be responsible for authorizing and um, monitoring. Um, charters within their, their um, legal jurisdiction. And, you know, I think in retrospect that may have been a mistake because the school boards and the districts um, oftentimes are just overwhelmed with their own problems, their own dealings uh, with all of the other schools that they have responsibility for and having special attention focused on charter schools was just not something they were up for in that challenge. And I think if we had to do it all over again in California having some kind of independent authorizers that can work full-time on um, monitoring charter development uh, would be a better way to go than um, what we did in California with giving school districts uh, you know, the entire authority to uh, uh, grant and, um, and modify uh, chartering in our state.
0: Well, certainly my personal experience aligns with that. My um... Um, after those seven years in, in teaching, I got a business degree that I went to San Diego and I served as the authorizer in San Diego Unified, uh, San Diego Unified was the first major urban school district to pr- approve a charter school policy. Uh, and I was responsible for the oversight of 27 charters at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. but I can tell you, um, the oversight, ex- um, uh, responsibility was situated in the basement of that school district. Right, it mm-hmm. was the last. It was the last priority. It was not seen as something that needed to be excellent. All of the uh, responsibility was delegated to other others in the school district, um, and in the end, we ended up with a lack of coherence over what we were trying to do. But a lack of coherence is actually better than what authorizing has evolved into at least in in most parts of of California, where now district oversight is just defense. How can we slow the growth of charter schools, how can we resist the the growth of charter schools? And that leads to my next question for both of you. Uh, Having been very successful um, politicians, very successful legislators, uh, you guys know the rough and tumble. Uh, You know what it was like to try and get this bill passed. uh, the charter school story has always been intertwined with advocacy and politics. Uh, I think for a good 10, 15 years, uh, there was less controversy, maybe less focus from the traditional system on, on holding us back. But when it became clear what level of momentum the charter school movement had, uh, we saw a real focus and, um, and that is, has made our, our lives much more complicated. And so I would just love to ask the two of you, what are your thoughts? What should we be doing as a movement as it relates to advocacy and politics to try to make our fourth decade as successful as possible?
2: It's interesting that the Gallup polls of up to about 2016 found that about two-thirds of America supported chartering. That meant Republicans and Democrats, a lot of people and. What else did two-thirds of Americans support in those years? Um, and so it was pretty remarkable. And and Congress has always been very bipartisan in their approval, for example, of the startup funds. Um, but things changed after 2016. And um, I think it became partisan. Um, ironically... Um, in the Trump administration, which was supportive of charters, there was a conflation between chartering and private school vouchers. And I saw that in the literature over and over. And because the public doesn't support vouchers as much as chartering, it affected the uh, favorability rating of chartering. Now, in the Biden administration, they're not exactly rooting and cheerleading like President Clinton and President Obama were, um, but it's better. It's 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 sort of a neutral right now. So what we think, what I think, we need to do is to come back to where we were when two-thirds of America supported chartering. There was a reason they supported it. So what were the messages then, and how do we get back to that? One of the ways I'm working on that now, and that really is kind of leads to what I'm doing now. Um, is that um, I'm working with the National Charter Schools Institute, which is led by Dr. Jim Gutner, to create something called the National Charter Schools Founders Library. And the purpose of that is to capture the origins of chartering in Minnesota, California, Colorado, around the country, and get that into oral histories, similar to this, and get that into the documents so that in the future we have preserved the why and the how of chartering that we're talking about today without all of the myths that have been surrounding it. And I think the more that we can have the public use these resources out of the mouths of the pioneers, Republicans, Democrats, governors, legislators, school leaders, that to me is part of the purpose and the why of the library. And I'm very excited that we're launching our new website and Charter Schools Week uh, this year to celebrate the 30th anniversary. So it'll be a new standalone website. And of course, the video of California with Gary and me and Eric Premack and Sue Burr is on there. And uh, there's a whole California page. So pretty excited about that. And of course, a whole Minnesota page as well.
1: I, th- I think, Jed, your question is a $64,000 question uh, as how to move forward in this era of uh, great polarization. And as Ember was making reference to the great fear is that chartering is viewed as a Republican versus a Democratic um, uh, proposal or idea, which is uh, obviously not not true, as to how to counter this and how to develop a, a more a less divisive and a more accurate view. Um, it, you know, it's tough. I guess from my standpoint, I would just say I think telling successful charter uh, stories um, is extremely important. I don't think the public has a good understanding, first of all, of what a charter is. I mean, when we did the legislation initially, just explaining what a charter is is um, is a bit of a challenge. And I think much of the public, uh, still doesn't have a good understanding of what charter is—that it really is part of a public school system—that uh, needs to be emphasized. But I think telling telling stories of, um, of you know successes in charter schools uh, is extremely important. And um, I think um, if we have resources that can be devoted to that, instead of spending all of our resources on trying to. Get involved in political campaigns, which are important, but uh, seem to just be overwhelming. Uh, you know what's going on, particularly in our larger school districts in California. Telling these stories uh, that have made made a difference in so many children's and parents' and teachers' lives is is important. How to do that to get people's attention? I don't know whether it's through websites or whether whether it's through public television or it's through um, other kinds of maybe you know traditional communication. But it seems to me. Um, that um, has been lost a little bit or has been neglected and needs to be emphasized quite a bit more.
0: Well, I'll put out one idea for you and ask your reactions to that. And then maybe we'll have one last question where I can just love to hear what you would want to share with the, the, the Charter Folk audience generally. But because um, I was in a role where it was my responsibility to try to surface as many positive stories as there were about charter schools and Charter Folk is just the next chapter my volunteer effort to try and 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 uh, bring more charterness out into the public, um, and I think we have so much to celebrate. But I also know that stories in uh, do not command the public sphere like attack bills coming from the other side. Uh, if we're saying we're doing these nice things, but the other side is running bills saying that we're uh, we're excluding kids, we're Um, not fiscally transparent or whatever it may be that their bills will uh, ultimately command the public sphere. My thought is that um, where charter schools are strongest is in leading uh, the the, the overall system to try to become stronger generally. Um, My sense is that there are issues within our public school system that are just not that public. Uh, The way that we allocate educational opportunity by attendance boundary or by selective admissions criteria um, uh, is simply not as public as charter schools which admit absolutely everyone. Uh, We see school districts that uh, take money away from the highest needs communities to move it over to other schools where there are lower needs, right? Uh, But charter schools can't and don't do that because they approve all of their budgets down to the school level. Where everyone can see whether or not the funding has gotten to the schools, the students for whom it's intended, and our role is really to try to uh, to, to push the system to become greatly more public by both mod- modeling what greatly more public status looks like, but also pushing the traditional system to purge itself of these of these age old problems that it thus far has been unable to to uh, to get over. Uh, just general reactions is that just completely um, out of left field. That is n- that's not a way to drive any kind of narrative. Or is this a space where, hey, maybe with some more thought, you know, we might be able to surface some ideas that could start to drive a new narrative for our movement more broadly?
1: Gary, you want to start? Oh, sure. I, no, I think it's a good point. Um, and you know, it's kind of interesting, Jed, that you're talking about uh, the selective uh, strategies that are used in uh, traditional public schools as compared to charters, and yet, One of the biggest things that one hears over and over again uh, from people who uh, are supposed to be experts on charter schools is that charter schools push out students that they don't don't want. They're the ones that are being selected. And it's the public schools who have to take all children that um, are um, really the the democratic, small-D democratic institution and the charters are somehow an elitist organization. So I, I, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's a point well taken, and there needs to be a little pushback, uh, quite a bit of pushback, and the issue is, it seems to me, is how to how to best do that pushback. One of the things, and you know, I'm somewhat somewhat removed from the ongoing battles, but it seems to me the academic community, for example, uh, most of the people that I read tend to have an anti-charter bias, um, and I think somehow trying to um, Foster and nurture, and spend more time with uh, um, academic researchers might be, um, you know, a wise investment, as well as, you know, some of the more public things that I was, you know, mentioning before, whether it be websites or whether it be, uh, you know, um, uh, public television. Um, and there are still organizations that represent the civic leadership of a, you know, of. Uh, of a community, whether it be in California, the Bay Area Council, or there would be uh, some kind of forum that exists in Los Angeles or San Diego that involves uh, community leaders. I think uh, reaching out and really trying to get an audience before some of these uh, groups, you know, would be important. I also think, uh, you know, editorial boards. I come at this maybe from a very traditional standpoint of thinking that uh, people still read editorials, and maybe that's uh, maybe that's passé. But I think. Trying to seek out um, editorial boards, not just when there's a bill pending, but to talk more generally about what's going on in public education, what's going on in charter schools um, is, is a very important thing, I think, for the charter movement to be involved in. And I think perhaps it's been neglected somewhat.
2: Well, Jed, I, I thought uh, what you were saying about trying to get schools more public Um it's it really is sometimes about what the public doesn't know about. And, and I think you're saying that because in Minnesota, Minneapolis, the story I remember so distinctly before chartering happened uh, was a school board member, African-American, saying at a school board meeting, you know, to the superintendent, show me the money, show me the money. In other words, the schools in the African-American part of the community He felt we're not getting the dollars that the schools in the well, more well-to-do area of Minneapolis was getting, which, by the way, is just south of where George Floyd was murdered. So it just gives you a sense here. But in any event, the bottom line is he was right. The superintendent was not distributing the money equally and the north side wasn't getting as much as the wealthier south side. Okay, And um, what happened was that our legislature passed a law that basically required transparency by school. And so that part did occur. And now people and parents, if they are alerted to it, if they understand that, have the ability to actually look at the numbers. It's exactly what you said though, it's exactly. Um, Bottom line, what can we do? Where do I think we need to go? My training is in messaging. And messaging hasn't been so good for chartering. Um, and what we have to do is stay out of the weeds. We are on the opponent's turf. We we Everything starts from there. Values messaging is where people resonate. And so there was some uh, great focus group work done by the National Alliance and Frank Lund, so a few years ago, and I still use this every single time I talk about chartering. The number one word that resonates with people is opportunity. And chartering is all about opportunity, particularly for students that might not have had that in the traditional system. Maybe they were falling through the cracks. The three, three pieces of that message are the freedom to choose, which is more the conservative message. The second message is uh, equal opportunity for every individual child. That's the equity part of the message. And the, fir- the third one is accountability for your tax dollar, because you actually do know where your tax dollar is going and the money is following the student to that school. So if you talk in terms of values that chartering creates opportunity, it gives parents the freedom to choose so that every child can reach their full potential and we do better with taxpayer dollars, who can argue with that? But that's not what we hear about chartering. and. Uh, That's one of the reasons why we need to, during this 30th anniversary, revisit our roots, revisit the reasons, the values behind it, dispel the myths, and rise above it so we get back to that two-thirds approval of America. There was a reason for that, and we can get back to it.
0: Well, uh, to the two of you, I'm uh, so thankful to both of you for being a part of this. I want to hear your last thoughts. but. You know, you've, you've demonstrated why both you guys end up, you know, i still on my desk to this very day, right? Uh, I've learned so much from the two of you. Uh, our movement owes the two of you just a massive debt of gratitude for extraordinary effort. Uh, and so, you know, thank you for all of that. Um, uh, and thank you for your thoughts here. I'd l- love just to hear any last thoughts you might have for the Charter Folk audience, any requests you might make I uh, would love to hear from, from both of you in, in our last couple minutes here.
1: Well, let me just very briefly say we focused a lot on concerns and problems that exist. But we have to keep in mind that, uh, I mean, here in California, we have close to 10 percent, I believe, of students that are in some form of charter school, which is an extraordinary um, achievement, um, giving parents and teachers and students the very um, opportunities, uh, Equities and accountability that uh, Ember so eloquently, you know, put forward. So, for all of our our problems that exist, it seems we have a lot to be very proud of, and I think it does get somewhat back to the messaging issue of how do we do a better job of 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 telling this story that has really been a remarkable story in the history of American public education, Um, and I think we can do a much better job. It's going to require some resources and some creative thinking, but I think if we bring together people from different walks of life, uh, whether they are parents or teachers or academics or researchers or elected officials, um, I think the charter school uh, movement speaks for itself and can uh, garner new support and and new new ways of of looking at what we are doing and how we can improve public education, including charter uh, school education.
2: I couldn't agree more. Um, But the reason we have a lot to be proud of is because people like you, Jed, and others have taken the mantle all these years, okay, and helped to build and support charter schools in your various states. That couldn't happen without you. So thank you for that. And I'll just close with a story. I just was in touch a couple weeks ago with Milo Cutter, who founded the first charter school, in Minnesota in the nation, City Academy, which actually serves students who had previously dropped out of high school. And she told me that I needed to talk to the chairman of her board because he was a graduate of City Academy of 1993. So that was like the first first year okay he's now chairman of the board another 94 graduate is on the board and guess what a child of the 93 graduate is now in city academy it's serving generations it's making a difference not only for students but their future and their lives and their families And we want people to have that choice and that opportunity. That's what our country is all about. So I'm really excited to have this opportunity today that we have an opportunity to celebrate the 30th anniversary, revisit our roots and why we're here and hear those great stories that Gary was talking about. Thanks
0: again, Jeff, this was great. Well, you guys have been great in, in helping, you know, three decades of extraordinary progress on behalf of kids and families happen. I remain as bullish and optimistic as both of you. I think our fourth decade is going to be the best of them all. And I look forward to continue to forge on with both of you. Thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Bye-bye now.